Today is October 15, 2009. Welcome to Neuroscientist Talk Shop, UTSA's neurobiology podcast. Our guest today is Garrett Stuber, who is an associate scientist at the Gallo Institute at UCSF, uh, where he looks at plasticity and dopaminergic transmission during Q-reward learning. Hi, Garrett. Hi. Around the room, we've got Carlos Palladini. Hello. We've got Charlie Wilson. Hi. And Michael Ferris. Hello. And me. I'm your host, Salma Karashi. So first off, I just want to highlight, Garrett, that of all our guests, you're one of the ones to have the most varied and ambitious arsenal of experimental tools for asking your particular research questions. Um, I want to start by first letting you tell us what particular questions have motivated your work and how it is that you've been so successfully able to mobilize developing technologies to your needs. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I'm, I'm really interested in the neural circuitry that underlies um, Q-reward learning and decision-making in animals. So, um, you know, I think only it's been a very recent development that we now have a set of tools that we can use to perturb specific aspects of neural function and um, in vivo during behavior and, you know, be able to manipulate and see how taking um, those specific circuit elements offline or by selectively stimulating them during behavior, how can that influence um, decision making and learning. So specifically, what, what tools are we talking about? Why don't you? So um, the ones that we've been recently using are the optogenetic tools that have been developed in the laboratory of Carl Dyseroff at Stanford University. So um, uh, for optical stimulation of certain subtypes of neurons, um, you can introduce the, um, the green algae protein channel rhodopsin 2 selectively into genetically defined populations of neuron and neurons. And then... Um, introduce a light source of a, of a certain wavelength that is capable of um, uh, selectively activating channel rhodopsin and, and therefore um, just activating that neuronal population that um, um, is expressing it. And what, so you've adapted this to in vivo manipulations to, during behavior? Uh, that's our main focus right now is to sort of... Ad- uh, these uh, techniques are still uh, very new, so there's a lot of kinks to work out. But our goal, or my goal at least, is to adopt this technology to more sophisticated behavioral experiments where um, you know we can have an animal doing a very uh, relatively complicated task, like um, asking it to choose between two very different um, outcomes or rewards, and then being able to selectively excite or inhibit specific um, synapses in different brain regions um, and see if that can modulate, uh, for example, like choice behavior or learning. So, so do- dopamine neurons are like an obvious choice, I guess, because the self-stimulation literature... Right, yeah. Had, and there's, it's, there's a long tradition of simulating dopamine neurons to make rats do whatever you want them to do. Mm-hmm. And... Um, one associated with that was always a set of caveats that had to do with electrical stimulation. Sure. We're not really yeah. positive that what we're stimulating is the dopamine pathway, yeah. especially in the lateral hypothalamus. Right. There's always kind of some uncertainty about what Right. Well, there's really plenty of other neurons in the lateral hypothalamus right. that could be contributing to reinforcing. And there was some kind of stimulus. mismatch between the conduction velocities. So there were these mm-hmm. experiments where they stimulated in two spots and the collision and the mm-hmm. conduction velocity seemed too fast for dopamine neurons mm-hmm. and all that stuff. But it seems as though that uh, maybe the lateral hypothalamus isn't a good example because who knows exactly what's happening there. Mm-hmm. But, the, but the rest of the pathway where you've been working mm-hmm. really looks like dopamine uh, neurons are doing exactly what 
everybody thought they might be doing in, in these self-stimulation. Yeah, I would yeah. say that our recent uh, 2009 paper that, was, that I was a co-author on that came out of Carl's lab uh, demonstrated, it was, it's one of the first evidence to um, show that you can selectively stimulate this population of neurons without activating other neurons that might be in the brain region, um, such as GABAergic neurons or glutamatergic neurons or even fibers of passage that are just running through those areas that could be, you know, going to who knows where. But if you selectively um, optically stimulate the dopamine neurons, you can um, produce um, uh, reinforcing or reward-like behaviors. It's one of the most remarkable sort of brain and behavior things that one ever sees. Is I remember seeing a film uh, that Jim Olds made mm-hmm. in which he had a rat with self-stimulation. Yeah. They weren't self-stimulation. They were dopamine cells. Maybe it was lateral heights of the lamb, mm-hmm. uh, electrodes in place. Mm-hmm. And he said, uh, he said, uh, rat in the corner pocket. And every time the rat started to walk toward the corner of the table, he would give it a shot. And when it moved away, it wouldn't. And in about five seconds, he had the rats huddled over in the very corner of the table. <laughs> and uh, it just it's uh, shocking, you know, that that the animal is so much controlled by the behavior of just one mm-hmm. single group. Yeah, it's actually amazing when they learn to do the optical self-stimulation as well. Um, you know, they basically for- forego any other behavioral movement or making. They are really fixated on just making a response in order to receive um, optical stimulation of, you know, these subsets of neurons, whether they're dopamine neurons or other neurons that project to dopamine neurons, I guess. So in that experiment, you used phasic stimulation in BTA to just induce uh, condition preference is that that's yeah the work you're talking yeah about? that's that's correct for the for the dopamine um, specific activation in another recent paper um, last year you looked at Q reward learning and saw that changes in strength of glutamatergic synapses onto VTA do- dopamine neurons drives a shift of the dopamine response in the nucleus accumbens to being time locked to the CS to the condition to the, right. to the Q uh-huh. rather than the, the reward itself so this is one of, I think this is one of the first studies that looked at what's happening in the dopamine network during learning rather than during... Right, learning. or immediately following learning, I guess. Right. right. Um, so what were you expecting to see, and how do you interpret what you found? Can we just go through um, that? That's such a great paper. I was actually, I was anticipating we would see a change in synaptic strength onto the dopamine neurons. I mean, that's sort of initially why, you know, we started doing the experiment. But um, the sort of... Um, having the stimulus or having the enhancement in synaptic strength onto the dopamine neurons be so transient and only associated when the animals were um, immediately acquired the behavioral response was something that was surprising to me. I thought it would, you know, stay elevated for a much longer period of time than just um, a couple behavioral sessions. And then once the animals have learned the task relatively well, the Q-reward association task, um, there was um, no change in synaptic strength at those synapses, which is in... um, uh, contrast to when animals self-administer drugs of abuse. So, for example, there's been studies from our group that have shown that when animals self-administer cocaine, you know, they're doing a very similar behavior. They're learning to lever press to receive a reward. In this case, it's a drug reward. But the synaptic strength onto dopamine neurons remains elevated for weeks to months after drug self-administration stops. So I think it also not only highlights the natural uh, 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 capabilities or response of these synapses during learning, but it also shows how um, different it can be when you have a drug reinforcer than the natural reward. 
you know, this prolonged increase in synaptic strain. Well, that's pretty interesting because, um, um, you know, the Schultz's classic work said that um, um, the, there's a shift in the, in the firing of the dopaminergic neurons from being physically activated by the reward itself to the cue that predicts the reward, mm -hmm. but still the, there is some set of inputs that the dopaminergic neurons respond to and that they're physically activated by whatever the sensory stimulus may be, right. whether it's the, the reward itself or the conditioned stimulus. And um, it's, it, seems, it seems kind of strange then that in, in your work when you show that this, this learning thing is transient, mm -hmm. um, but still the dopamine's, uh, and I'm kind of jumping ahead and thinking, well, these cells are now going to be um, preferentially um, activated by these synapses that are strengthened. Mm -hmm. and, um, but they are switching from, from one set of inputs to another, I'm supposing, or maybe it's the same set of inputs that are, that are just changing their, their postsynaptic makeup or, or, or the, the strength of, by which they activate the cells. Mm -hmm. um, is, is there, because then you show that then they lose it after, um, right. after, after they learn it. So this, well, that, this learning thing is very transient. Sure. And, you know, that's also um, sort of a caveat to that experiment was that we were stimulating, you know, essentially either a selective group of excitatory synapses that are coming in rostrally um, to the VTA, because that's where the electrical stimulating electrode was placed. Or you know, just sort of a compound set of a hodgepodge of different excitatory synapses. So it's possible that if you were able to look specifically at, say, the synapses that were carrying the cue-related information, that maybe those, because they were being repeatedly used, they would still be elevated. So if you, you know, um, for example, if you used like the channel adoption techniques to selectively stimulate um, a, a subset of synapses in the VTA. Um, the result might be very different than when you see uh, when what we saw with the compound stimulation, I guess. The question that's under the surface of what you guys are talking about is where does the <coughs> learning take place? It causes the response to shift from the reward to the cue. Yeah. Yeah. And I guess the assumption is maybe it's happening right there in the substantia nigra or in the BTA. Mm -hmm. I get them confused. The BTA <laughs> itself. Same difference. Um, uh, but on the other hand, it might not be happening there. Right. Uh, those there's not enveritic spines there. The cells don't have ten thousand right. inputs each, and sort of not the classic kind of architecture that we think of as going with learning associations. Mm -hmm. yeah. And so maybe it's somewhere else where that's right. And, they, and dopamine neurons certainly don't uh, shouldn't be able to discriminate against fine aspects of cues in the environment, like whether or not you see a blue light versus a yellow light or something like that, that sort of level of discrimination probably takes place, you know, in other neurons. Although there's an interesting paper from Hitoshi Morikawa's lab just last year where they, they tried to address this by inducing an LTP protocol on dopaminergic neurons by stimulating these rostral inputs electrically. Mm -hmm. And then they would induce LTP, but then they would try to um, test it by stimulating the caudal inputs mm -hmm. with the stimulating electrode, and they couldn't. They they found that the LTP was lost from those inputs. So there is synaptic specificity, some, some at least a rostral caudal specificity yeah. to these inputs, which is pretty interesting. Mm -hmm. But I know you also do work in other parts of the brain, like the nucleus accumbens. So mm -hmm. it seems that there is some kind of 
learning that goes on outside of dopamine cells. Uh, yeah, it absolutely. must be, right? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's really like a distributed network. I don't network like to think of it that way, but right. people know, tell me the rest of the We're kind of dopamine-centric, <laughs> I guess. But yeah, I mean, certainly. And one of the areas that I think, um, you know, it, it's more studied in the context of fear conditioning, but the basal lateral and central nucleus of the amygdala, uh, you know, clearly also play a role in cue reward learning as well. And, you know, those areas, at least the basal lateral amygdala, receives... Uh, Fairly decent dopaminergic input, but um, even independent of dopamine signaling, there's changes in cell firing, synaptic plasticity, you know, all sorts of things that occur there as well, and you know, that you know also potentially contribute to learning as well. So, I don't think you can really nail it down to a single subset of synapses. It's the distributed network of synaptic connectivity and how it sort of you know changes globally, I guess, that probably more contributes to it. So globally is a great word because I've always been puzzled by one feature of the of the great Schultz work, which has led us all into this way of thinking about dopamine neurons. One weird feature of it, it seemed to me, was that all the dopamine cells were doing basically the same thing. Mm -hmm. And at one point, he even says that he thinks 80% of the dopamine cells are responding in the task that he is got the monkey doing. Right, right. And yet there's a bunch of dopamine neurons and they go to different places. Yeah, and there absolutely. seems to be some organization to all that. So it seems like what dopamine neuron you are ought to mean something. Mm -hmm. uh, so since you are able to stimulate little, littler groups of dopamine neurons, mm -hmm. do you see any kind of difference between dopamine neurons and what so we haven't really addressed that as of yet, but it's certainly something that we're interested in, especially from uh, the idea that perhaps dopamine release in the forebrain target regions, mainly the prefrontal cortex, the nucleus accumbens, and the basolateral amygdala, might be doing very different things when they're released. So, you know, until recently, if you electrically stimulated the VTA, you released dopamine to all those areas. So it's incredibly difficult to parse out you know, the, which increase in dopamine is causing the behavioral response. But um, now with the optogenetic approaches, we can selectively stimulate dopamine terminals in the nucleus accumbens or the basolateral amygdala or the prefrontal cortex to <clears throat> ask, you know, specifically what is transient increases in dopamine in those brain regions, you know, doing. Is, is one more important from, for, from a reinforcement or goal-directed behavior standpoint where Another one is, you know, more involved in attentional processing or something like that. So, um, so even between VTA and substantia nigra, where the dopamine neurons are, and there's a kind of uh, gradient in, mm -hmm. uh, in where those project to. So if you're kind of sure. halfway in between, it kind of goes halfway in between. Right. So, uh, do we have good information about differential activity of dopamine neurons in substantia nigra versus VTA, or are they? As far as we know, I mean, about the same time. As far as I can tell, the VTA is pretty um, heterogeneous, and even within the VTA, the populate. I mean, there's some dopamine neurons there that are certainly more nigra-like dopamine neurons, but then there's also another population of dopamine neurons that are, you know, very different than um, than sort of the classical striatal projecting ones that tend to. And, the, and the, the different neurons tend to project to the prefrontal cortex and the basolateral amygdala. There was a nice paper in Neuron by um, Lamell et al. last year that sort of examined the electrophysiological properties 
of these different subtypes of dopamine neurons that project to these different regions. But I think the take-home message is that they can be incredibly different. And the one thing I'll say about uh, Schultz's work, where he sees a very stereotypical response from every single neuron that he records from, is they were probably, um, you know, it's possible that they weren't completely sampling the whole spectrum of VTA and Nigrid neurons, and they were really honed in on a very specific part of it where they, you know, within, within a cluster or a subregion of the Nigra or the VTA, those neurons, yes, might be doing something very similar to each other. Whereas if you go to more medial portions of it or something, you know, it's possible you'd see a very, very different response. You sort of get used to putting your electrodes in the same. Right. Well, you know, you know the, the areas that give you the best responses. Uh-huh. And I think he's even said at some point that they, um, you know, would record from neurons that had a phasic response to reward. So they would screen their neurons whether or not mm-hmm. they had a response and just, you know, not record from the neurons that didn't have a response. So, so it might not be position. It could be in the along the sheet of cells that makes the difference. Mm-hmm. At every place, there could be cells, a heterogeneous group of cells that are responding in different situations. Right, or there's a higher percentage of neurons that respond to the re- reward in, you know, each subregion or something like that, yeah. And there's also... Um, those animals, the, the, the data was presented in animals that were really highly trained. Yeah, absolutely. The they were trained for, I believe, months before yeah, they were so reported from. It just may be that these animals were just, that's all that they do. And they could recruit dopamine cells. And at different stages of learning, mm-hmm. dopamine cells may be doing different things as well. Yeah, yeah. So do you have much interest in using your techniques to explore exactly what populations of neurons are responsible for listing the the Q-induced burst in dopamine, or actually just the primary reward-induced burst is also fairly interesting. I mean, the dopamine neurons do receive a a wide range of inputs, but in terms of rich sensory input, I mean, it's not so wide, unless it's filtered Mm -hmm. through the basal ganglia. Mm -hmm. And one hypothesis is that um, the sensory responses, even the reward-predicting sensory responses, are actually just... Uh, from uh, midbrain neurons, or from mm-hmm. clicker neurons. Right, right. And I was wondering if you have any opinion on that or have any plans to test that hypothesis. I think it's an interesting, uh, you know, idea that the colliculus, collicular neurons could be contributing to the phasic response to those. And, you know, I think the, the optogenetic approach is a very uh, nice system where you could actually test that. So, um, for example, you could make the neurons in the colliculus light-sensitive, selectively stimulate those inputs to the VTA, and, uh, you know, see if you can get burst firing. Um, aside from those, also the, the cholinergic and glutamatergic neurons from the peduncular pontine nucleus and the um, lateral dorsal, dorsal tegmental nucleus are also, I think, attractive candidates for stimulating burst firing of those neurons. It's actually interesting because the ones that a lot of people think are driving burst firing, the cortical neurons, the prefrontal cortical neurons that project there, may not even be um, uh, synapsing on the dopaminergic neurons that project to the nucleus accumbens. So um, I think there's just sort of this, within, within the field, there's this assumption that those cortical neurons um, project to accumbens projecting dopamine neurons, but, you know, the few... Um, electron microscopy studies that have been done don't really suggest that. So that whole, whether or not cortical neurons or subcortical neurons are projecting um, to accumbens projecting dopamine neurons is, in my mind, it's still an open question that needs to be explored more. 
So how do we take this into the realm of decision-making, of, of selecting actions? So we've got the sort of learned associations part of it down. How does the decision-making map onto the network as you see it? Yeah, well, in, in my opinion, um, um, many types of decision-making where you have at least one or two, uh, two choices in front of you um, are governed by the same things that govern Q-reward learning, for example. Um, a lot of times you, you have a decision between two rewards um, and you know that those rewards are available to you based on specific environmental cues that predict their availability, I guess. So, um, you know, essentially we can do the similar experiments that we've already been doing, but instead of just looking at one cue predicting a reward, have two cues that predict either qualitatively different or quantitatively different rewards and, um, to sort of get at, um, uh, you know, normally animals would prefer the a larger reward that requires the least amount of effort to get. And you know, can you can you bias their preferences for different rewards of different magnitudes by um, sort of uh, manipulating um, neurotransmission at very specific aspects, of synaptic, um, you know, very specific synapses. So that's sort of um, uh, what I would like to get into more in the future is to, um, you know, apply these techniques that we've done so far in, in, in relatively simple behavioral uh, experiments to, to more sophisticated behavioral experiments. So, you know, it seems like one um, possibility that's now open to you is, is basically to take complete control of the activity of dopamine neurons and, and decide when they're going to fire. So, in, right. in principle, you could have right. a, an inhibitory light signal can prevent them from firing when you don't want to, and right. then you can excite yeah. them when you want to. And so yeah. you can, I mean, there are hypotheses about how uh, this, about how a, a phasic dopamine signal is involved in um, you know, reinforcement learning, and there are predictions from different models about how the timing of that burst, when it arrives, right. how it's going to affect Or the pausing of the firing. Or the, exactly. Right. Yeah, that's something that's really interesting, and I've been thinking about it a um, a lot more recently, because as you as you said, we have the ability to selectively control um, either the excitation or inhibition of these neurons, and um, um, there's there's becoming um, sort of the second and third generation of these um, optically sensitive constructs, the channel rhodopsin and halo rhodopsin constructs, that are becoming available from uh, Carl Dysrauss lab and some of the other labs that have been working on it. And uh, one that's of particular interest to me is there's a construct that basically will express channelrhodopsin and halorhodopsin in the same neurons in sort of equal molar concentration. So um, if you can selectively introduce both of those light-sensitive proteins into dopamine neurons, then you really do have total control of them. And you can selectively just turn them on and turn them off depending on what wavelength you uh, introduce into the VTA. And so once, once that system is sort of set up and running, then you can ask the question is, what if we, you know, artificially pause these neurons um, when the animal receives a reward? Will it make a, will it extinguish the behavior because, you know, those dopamine neurons are pausing, uh, like uh, the electrophysiological evidence suggests, I guess. So I think the bottom line is we can finally, you know, most in vivo electrophysiology is uh, simply correlations between neuronal function and behavior, and now we have a way to test for the causality, the importance of burst firing of those neurons, or uh, you know, the lack of a burst even, uh, in controlling a given behavior.
So that would be great for putting the rat in the corner pocket. Oh, yes. <laughs> and then drive them out by inhibiting. <laughs> yeah, you're going to believe also. Yeah. yeah. But for figuring out what is, um, what is the reward signal. So we, the, the simple view that we always just say is that the dopamine self-firing is the reward signal. Uh-huh. But it becomes dissociated from the actual reward and that's, in a way, that's what makes it more interesting. Yeah. It's when the reward quits making the cell fire, and the cue that predicts the reward, start, reward starts to make it fire that the dopamine cell is doing something useful. Mm-hmm. Uh, according to these learning theories that say that um, you should be working backwards from the reward, learning associations that will lead you along a complicated path in which there is right. no reward, right. it finally ends with the reward. Mm-hmm. And so I guess the idea for most of these temporal difference learning and related ideas is that you you learn the, the steps in a sequence backwards from the reward backward mm-hmm. toward the earliest possible yeah. cue. So if you take that seriously, and I, I do, I don't see a reason why not, <laughs> then that means that uh, the experiment that's done where there's just one cue and then a reward and the cue precedes the reward by, you know, a second or less than a second. Mm-hmm. And then uh, that's the experiment that gets done. But that's supposed to stand for uh, um, something in which there's a cue that, give, that leads to a cue that leads to a cue that leads to a cue that ends with a reward that I guess could take, you know, a long time. Like the students said, matriculate and they sign up for classes and they do all that stuff and there's no reward in any of that and mm-hmm. then finally they graduate sometimes quite a long time after they there really is no reward so <laughs> usually a letdown <laughs> but the our complicated sequences like that the dopamine neurons firing presumably has to move its way back a long time a long way in time uh-huh. and how do we you know picture that happening I just uh, yeah, it's difficult to understand. Yeah, I mean, maybe the dopamine system is more involved with immediate rewards, and you know, because there's some rewards that you never experience for many years, you know, or a, a long period of time that you may have never experienced in the past, but yet you still know it's you know rewarding, even though you've never experienced it. I guess so. I've heard of some. There, yeah. <laughs> there's been some experiments where they try to add cues backwards in time and they, they see a shift mm-hmm. or, yeah like yeah, with a block of activation and it always goes I don't know to how the far back they get to go though certainly not years yeah yeah <laughs> but at least for a couple cues when they're chained together yeah the phasic activity usually uh, um, occurs to the first reward right. or the first cue sorry. the first reliable cue, cue. Yeah. and the other subsequent cues there's no there's phasic no. activity to those. So it is really the first incident that, um, uh, you know, can alert the brain that the reward is coming that it fires to, I guess. In these experiments, everything's made simple, but in, which is good because experiments need that. But in real life, you get a cue that tells you that there's an opportunity to get this other cue. Mm-hmm. And then the other cue may tell you that, you know, that there's more than one opportunity available to you. Mm-hmm. And, the, and you have to sort of weigh the relative merits of the, of the choice. Right. And there's no reward at that point at making the right decision, which is why we sometimes make wrong decisions, I mm-hmm. guess. And there's like a tree of these that lead to it. And uh, 
So there's some idea out there in the literature, like from Avi Bergman's lab, that um, that the dopamine cells signal the probabilities of reward or relative merits of reward mm -hmm. based on cues, and that provide a sort of reward probability gradient that we can move down toward mm -hmm. getting to the reward. In which case, you would get a little bit, every time there was a decision to be made, you'd see some, there'd be some dopamine signal, I guess, to help guide you. Mm -hmm. Because otherwise, you know, at a, at a choice point, at a branch point, so, you know, in, in Old's original experiment, what they were planning to do was to try to get, to control a rat's behavior in a maze. So they were going to put, um, they were going to put, I, of course, I, I wasn't there, I just read about this. <laughs> it's not my time, but uh, they put a rat in the maze, and when rats are running mazes, they look up one arm, and then they look up the other, and they look up this one, and they look up that one, and then they make a decision, sort mm -hmm. of like that. And their idea was that when the rat would look up one side, they would give them a little shock to what they thought was the arousal mechanism mm -hmm. in the brain, and that that would cause the, the rat to make the decision that they were contemplating at that moment, which is the arm that they were looking up, and that they didn't realize when they implanted the electrodes that it was a reward place in the brain that worked a lot better than they had mm -hmm. expected. But in every one of those choices, you... I mean, this is the decision question that Selma was raising. The dopamine signal can't just disappear after that first cue. That it, does, it, starts it, it, it seems that it does. There's a, a relatively much lesser known paper from Schultz's lab by Fiorillo um, at all, or Fiorillo and Schultz, that where they showed that if now the cue only presents a probability of reward, such mm -hmm. that 50% of the time you do get the reward, 50% of the time you don't get the reward, then there is actually an increase in activity of the dopaminergic neurons during the period from the cue to the actual reward. So if I recall correctly, in addition, they did also get a small response to the reward as yeah. well. Yeah. 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 It was yeah. like 50-50. There's still a response to the cue, not as large as if it predicted at 100% of the time. Right. But there was still, there was like a dual peak where it would be phasing to both the Q and the reward with maximal uncertainty, I guess is what they said. So what's the background activity mean? The dopamine cells also have this background activity. They apparently have this other activity that nobody talks about too much <laughs> called tonic activity. And uh, that must be doing something else. And, but that was changing in the experiment you were talking about? Yeah, so the actual background that tonic activity seems to just increase monotonically uh, up to the point when the reward is actually delivered, and um, then if so it you is could follow, delivered, if you were the if you were the animal, you could follow your background activity as a gradient toward the reward. Yeah, yeah. if you could sense that. Yeah. If you could tell that. Yeah. So the background activity, though, I mean, in the voltammetric experiments, the background the building release from the background activity is kind of hard to. Yeah, it's very hard to detect. Um, you know, we definitely tend to ignore it just because we we don't really measure it very well. So, um, you know, there's other techniques that are more suited for it, I think, like microdialysis, but, you know, it's certainly still important. So, going back to the pauses and their significance, um, I know that um, at least some attempts to actually measure a drop in dopamine in, say, the striatum of the nucleus accumbens when, under conditions when dopamine cells pause, not found anything. I was wondering in your voltammetric measurements if you actually were able to measure a drop in striatal dopamine? Um, in my experiments, <coughs> we haven't really looked 
at it uh, in too much detail. I, I believe there was a paper published by uh, Mitch Reutemann and colleagues maybe last year uh, where they did see a drop in dopamine once they signal averaged many trials together where they mm-hmm. uh uh, presented the animal with an aversive event. Like it was very, it's much harder to see than seeing a phasic increase, but I still think if you average many trials together and it's a significant drop, it's probably possible to detect it still with voltammetry. So that would be a case where the background activity is somehow like the phasic activity. I mean, because removing it becomes a phasic signal. So it would have to be sort of part of the same system. You know, there's always been a kind of suggestion that maybe the background activity serves an entirely different function Mm -hmm. and it's connected to a different set of dopamine receptors that are located on a different set of neurons and maybe doing something completely unrelated to reward or to goal-seeking. And, for example, in in Parkinson's disease, the symptoms must have a lot to do with the loss of that tonic Mm-hmm. background signal because you can get some symptomatic relief by just providing ex- exogenous dopamine mm-hmm. or dopamine agonists. Mm-hmm. So there was always kind of a notion that well the the background activity is is different. But if the but if the pause is really like the opposite of a burst, right. then the background activity is serving the same function as the phasic signals in some in some way. And the level of background activity is probably controlled by the similar mechanisms that control the burst, I guess. Yeah, I've actually always wondered in, in Parkinson's disease, like if you can just replace dopamine, uh, background dopamine and people are fine, then why don't we have a brain that is already in the state where it doesn't need this background? I mean, it, it says in, just at that level, it doesn't seem to have any signaling function. It's only when you think about maybe the possibility of the pause being Information, information bearing, do you even begin to understand why the brain would have this need for tonic dopamine, which at first glance doesn't really make sense, right? If there's anything you need all the time, then you might as well adjust the physiology of your cells so that they're just fine without it. Right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, I think it must be that the tonic dopamine release is really uh, a make, signal and does change. Yeah, to make pauses visible. So that's another possibility, though, that it's only there to make pauses visible, yeah. and that like Parkinsonian symptoms have to do with the absence of bursts and causes in some way that we, don't <laughs> we don't completely understand. It is a, it's a weird fact that dopamine is related both to reward and to Parkinson's disease, mm-hmm. and the attempt to divide them into BTA and substantia nigra doesn't really completely work, because yeah. even though it's true that PTA is sort of more related to reward than substantia nigra is, and substantia nigra is more related to movement than VTA. It's not, it doesn't actually It's not that simple. Yeah. If you actually, I went back at one point and looked at, um, I think some of the early Swanson papers where they, you know, injected the uh, retrograde labels in the accumbens and see where the dopamine neurons end up being labeled. And I think they saw, you know, a pretty high percentage of nigra neurons that are actually projecting to certain parts of the ventral striatum as well. So, you know, nigris has a pretty dense projection. To and the nigra neurons are doing this response to reward and reward. Yeah, exactly. They have very similar responses to VTA neurons. So, you know, I think, as you said earlier, thinking of it more as a gradient is uh, makes more sense in my mind than treating them as two separate distinct nuclei for different purposes or whatever. So this might be a technical point, uh, not 
interesting to everybody, but the the weird thing to me then is that there's no subthalamus for that VTA. There's no subthalamic equivalent. Mm-hmm. In the diagrams of the VTA, you never see the subthalamic nucleus. I guess it must not project to the VTA. Mm-hmm. Uh, I guess from those diagrams, I've never actually checked. Yeah. And there's no subthalamic nucleus like, or, you know, obvious homolog to that for mm-hmm. the VTA. Uh, isn't that odd? How did, so, for example, in the case of the substantia nigra, bursts that are triggered by cortical stimulation in substantia nigra are relayed by the subthalamic nucleus as the intermediary. Yeah. At least that's, if you remove the subthalamic nucleus, the cortex is unable to trigger, cortical stimulation doesn't trigger bursts anymore in substantia nigra. So mm-hmm. we've always thought of all the cortical influences being sort of indirect and going through the subthalamic nucleus. Mm-hmm. In the case of the nigra. In the case of the nigra, but in the VTA, there's People no speak of direct cortical inputs to the VTA, even though they may not mm-hmm. actually go to the dopamine neurons and they may not be very big. Right. Certainly nothing like the size of the subthalamic input to the uh-huh. substantia nigra. And I just wonder, you know, if, they're, if they are really similar, and they do seem really similar, why is there no subthalamic nucleus? Right. Well, they must receive some glutamatergic input. Yeah. Not too sure where it's from, though. Why not the um, lateral habenula? Or the... Does the pedunculo ponti nucleus also go to VTA? As far as I understand it, yeah. So, um, I don't know what the relative contribution is between... From pedunculo ponti nucleus or lateral habenula to Niagara versus VTA. I'm not sure if it's been in, been investigated. I thought the... Pedunculate ponting was more Niagara, but still some yeah, VTA. Yeah, so it definitely goes to VTA. But there's, but there's, yeah, there's still definitely VTA innervation from there. And then the the lateral dorsal tegmentum or whatever, that's close by the PPTG projects mainly to the VTA. Yeah. But that's, yeah, I'm not, I'm, I'm never too sure about that because there seems to be more input to Niagara, but that's also because nigral dopaminergic neurons are more compact. Then, hence their, the name substantia nigra pars compacta. Mm-hmm. Because of the VTA, they're more dispersed. Yeah. So, on a per neuron basis, they still may re- be receiving the same, the same amount, amount of input. input. Yeah, but yeah. so I was never really sure right. What, right. what the differential distribution is. Yeah. Another difference between the two that bugs me, and so I bring it up, is that the substantia nigra pars compacta is located adjacent to the substantia nigra pars reticulata. And since it's dendrites into the reticulata and has some communication with the with reticulata, they're kind of uh, partners. They they're synaptically connected, and the reticulata is an output station of the basal ganglia. And I can't really picture substantia nigra pars compacta without the substantia nigra reticulata. Uh, so if the VTA is like substantia nigra then there must be reticulata-like neurons its partner in area. there. Yeah. So are they just mixed in with neurons that project maybe to the thalamus or to, or to other targets of the basal ganglia? Are, they, are there no efferents other than dopamine efferents in the VTA? No, I don't think. I mean, I think there's definitely other efferents in the, in the VTA. I mean, there's you know, presumably some GABAergic neurons that project with the dopamine neurons to the forebrain. And then uh, there's been some recent evidence to suggest that uh, 
very medial rostral portion of the VTA actually contains a subpopulation of glutamatergic neurons as well. So, I mean, it's certainly a heterogeneous brain structure. It might not be as well uh, anatomically defined as the uh, compacta and reticulata is, but you know, there's still the possibility that there's interconnectivity between different populations of neurons within the VTA. So you're saying like, like the... Uh, I think there would be a VTA output to the thalamus here. Or yeah. just, but know, like the, the gabaritic neurons in the VTA are the reticulata equivalents, or something, as long as they project out from the VTA. I guess that would be satisfying to me. I, yeah. I don't know exactly what I'm searching for, right. but, the, <laughs> but it seems to me that if the VTA is like the substantia nigra, it ought to have gabaritic efferents that go to the thalamus or something like that. Uh, some or to the spirit curriculus or to some, you know, sort of standard basal ganglia target, yeah. <laughs> uh, or something that we ought to consider a basal ganglia target, even if we don't consider it that right now, mm-hmm. because the nucleus accumbens is basal ganglia, the VTA is basal ganglia. The, you know, this, these are basal ganglia connections. There's um, even the olfactory tubercle mm-hmm. has this really strong similarity to the rest of the basal ganglia. Yeah. Olfactory tubercle might be. The most overlooked in it. Yeah, very understudied forebrain area. And there are, but there are nuclei in the intralaminar thalamic group that project to the accumbens, and they're completely analogous to the ones that project to the dorsal striatum. So that all of those things are exactly parallel. So whenever the parallel breaks, I think oh, there must be something we don't yeah. really haven't seen yet. So what about the ventral pallidum? Is there a part of the GPE that is fully devoted to the ventral pallidal accumbal circuit and so it is perfectly parallel? Or or is there a break in the parallelism when you look at the pallidal component of dorsal versus ventral? For GPE, I know the answer to that question. I'm not sure about GPI. But for GPE, there is a ventral pallidum that, that is completely continuous with the dorsal GP. It extends ventral and goes a little bit uh, rostral and kind of undercuts the, uh, the uh, goes b- beneath the accumbens so that it, the rostral tip of it is mm-hmm. almost touching the accumbens. And it also is lying right over the top of the, of the olfactory tubercle. Now, is this structure referring to what I'm talking, what I call the ventral pallidum, that is the pallidum that projects to the mediodorsal thalamic nucleus? Or is this separate? I, mean, I guess look, just to be terminologically clear about what we're talking about. It is continue. It is. It is kind of. It does definitely project the medial dorsal. So this okay. nucleus you're thinking about. It's just a continuation of the GP. Right. Though there's no boundary or there's no break. It just goes right on. So I guess my argument or my suggestion is that this may be uh, an ex- another example of a place where the ventral and Dorsal uh, basal ganglia circuitries are not perfectly parallel. If it's true that um, the ventral palatal component is not does not have these clearly segregated uh, parts that we know in the dorsal s- circuitry as GPE and GPI, right? I see. Sounding starting to sound more like songbirds. Yes, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so for the, our audience. Uh, uh, birds are different uh, in that they, they have a pallidum, uh, but they don't have separate uh, internal and external segments. And they have a subthalamic nucleus, but there's no um, there's no separate uh, palatal structure that is reciprocally connected to the subthalamic nucleus that is separate from some other palatal structure that, like the GPI in mammals, that serves as the output nucleus. Yeah. 
The little bit I remember about the olfactory tubercle is the same thing. It has its sort of own palatal-like cells built right into the olfactory yeah. tubercle. They're kind of segregated, but not, not yeah, entirely. Not, yeah. not very much. So all of those, well, I mean, it's only for that, I guess, anatomical aficionado that that stuff becomes really fascinating. But it's, uh, <laughs> <laughs> but it is interesting to see something kind of like bird basal ganglia lying in some part of the mammalian yeah. basal ganglia. Well, thank you for being with us, Garrett Stuber. This has been Neuroscientist Talk Show. Oh, my God.